Welcome to DNA Unlocked, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, which is a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. In DNA Unlocked, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President of Global Research at Amgen, explores the ever-evolving perception of human biology and disease processes, thanks to a growing mountain of genetics and omics data. Through discussions with colleagues and other leading research experts, Deshays unpacks how drug developers decode human genetics to solve some of the most challenging diseases. Human genetics has the power to transform the future of drug development, disease treatment, and the overall approach to healthcare. In this episode, I discuss current and future applications of omics to clinical trials, disease risk assessment, and precision medicine with Amit Kara, a cardiologist and associate director of the Precision Medicine Unit in the Center for Genomics Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Amit pioneered the use of polygenic risk scores calculated from genome-wide association studies as a way to quantify genetic risk. His research program uses genetic variation as a tool to uncover new biology as well as to enable enhanced clinical care informed by inherited susceptibility. Amit has joined us for discussing how one could use genetics and other humanomics to really start thinking about personalized medicine and developing treatments to people based on their genotype for both diseases where they're at increased risk or diseases that they already have. Amit, tell us a little bit about your work in pioneering these polygenic risk scores. One of the key goals of precision medicine is to identify high-risk individuals to enable preventive therapies prior to disease onset or to find individuals who have an outsized response to a given therapy. One important approach to do this for heritable diseases is to take advantage of DNA variation that you inherit from your mom or your dad. The traditional genetic approach is to look for very rare monogenic mutations. So for heart attack, for example, about 0.4% of the population inherits a variant. It disrupts a single base pair, but it actually prevents your body from clearing LDL or bad cholesterol from the circulation. That's a really discrete molecular subtype of heart attack, where the risk is driven by the single pathway perturbation and that leads to tripling or quadrupling of risk. One of the questions that I had uh, starting a few years ago was, what can genetics say about the remaining 99.6% of the population who don't have one of these cholesterol-raising variants? That's really where I think the polygenic score can play an important role. The goal is to distill inherited risk from a bunch of different common DNA variants into a single number, and that single number is meant to represent your inborn risk for a given disease. Starting in 2008-2009, there was proof of principle that a polygenic score could work for conditions like diabetes, breast cancer, heart disease. But the predictive power was actually quite limited. What's changed over the last several years is, number one, is the just sheer size of genetic studies that have been done. Two is much more sophisticated computational algorithms. And then three is the ability to have data sets where we can test and validate these scores. Amit, can you give us a little bit more detail about what exactly a polygenic risk score is? And how exactly do you go about generating one? And once you deduce one, how difficult is it to assess it in an individual? 
So I'll walk you through an example of how we made a polygenic score for coronary disease. We first needed to understand the relationship between a given DNA variant, a single misspelling in the code, and risk for heart disease. We found 60,000 people with coronary disease and 120,000 controls. We used a standard genotyping array to look at the genetic variants in all of them. Those are available for the cost of only $30 to $40 currently. And we looked at each of 6 million sites in the DNA genome. We said, if a variant's more common in the people who had heart disease, that's a risk variant. And if a variant's more common in the people who didn't, that's actually a protective variant. And what we found was that there were many variants scattered across the genome that impacted risk. Some increased risk by 2%, others decreased it by 0.1%, and so forth. But the outcome of this analysis, which is called a genome-wide association study, is simply a list, 6 million rows, and for every variant, you have an effect size estimate on how it impacts your risk. So with that list in hand, we then used a sophisticated computational algorithm to then say, how can we combine information from all 6 million variants, weight them appropriately, account for double counting because variants tend to be correlated together, especially if on the same chromosome, and come up with a validated polygenic score. Now, that polygenic score is actually normally distributed in the population, just like things like blood pressure and cholesterol. With this in hand, we now had a new polygenic score. Using these much larger data sets, we could find people with triple, quadruple, even five times increased risk. As an example, doing a direct comparison to the traditional approach of looking for these high cholesterol mutations, we found actually it wasn't 0.4%, but actually 8% of the population who inherited more than triple the risk based on common genetic variation alone. So it was 20 times as common. Do the data that these scores are based on apply to all kinds of people around the world? For example, could someone with Asian or African or South American ancestry get as accurate of a risk score as somebody with European ancestry? And if not, then what could be done to improve these risk assessments for everyone? In medicine, we have a pretty troubled history with respect to race and diversity. We're now going through systematically and unwinding some previous biases. If you actually go back and look at the genome-wide association studies or genetic analyses to date, it turns out that about 80 to 85% of them have occurred in individuals of European ancestry. And this is both scientifically quite limited, but also poses important equity concerns. It turns out when you look at polygenic scores, we find that they work across ancestries, but the effect size is greatest in people of European ancestry. And this is something that's going to be a major focus of my group and many others around the world over the next five years. There's reason for optimism because increasingly we are collecting data in very diverse ancestral populations. And also from a mathematical standpoint, we're learning how to be more clever about borrowing information from related ancestries, related traits, functional genomic annotations. We don't vary across race. But there's a key need to do this systematically together as a community to really ensure that the benefits of these polygenic scores can be extended to everybody. If used correctly, genetics can be a very powerful anti-racism tool. You're measuring germline DNA using a chip that has 6 million variants. I'm assuming that you can take a sample of blood from somebody and incubate it with this chip, which costs 30 to $40. For that relatively modest cost, you can assess somebody's risk of having coronary disease based on this polygenic risk signature that, that you've determined. That's right. And we've actually launched in December of this past year the first clinical test for coronary disease, genetic test that looks for both these rare cholesterol mutations and the polygenic score. 
This is something I do in a new preventive genomics clinic I found at my hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital here in Boston. How it works is uh, a patient says they're interested, a saliva kit gets sent to the patient's house, and based on that saliva, they're able to determine the 6 million variants and then calculate a score for, for each individual. Uh, and that comes back in a report in, in about two weeks. Now, you include all 6 million variants when calculating the score. I'm curious, if you look at the variants that contribute, say, 95% of that score, does that work out to 100 genes, 1,000 genes, 100,000 genes, or is that not the right way of thinking about it? One insight that we had is that more variance really is better. So if you compare the predictive capacity of the top 50 variants, the top 50,000 variants to the top 500,000 to 5 million, you see a meaningful improvement in predictive capacity. And the reason for that is although the variants lower down the list are less impactful, there are just so many more of them. When compared head to head, the expanded genome-wide polyjank score really is meaningfully better in terms of its predictive capacity. One thing you can do is just say, of the 50 or so variants that are the highest weighted in the score, what pathways or genes do they actually tag? What we found is that about 25% of these top variants actually tag pathways related to lipid metabolism, high LDL cholesterol or bad cholesterol, triglycerides or fat in the circulation, and lipoprotein A, which is an emerging risk factor that's a cousin of bad cholesterol. That accounts for about 25%. Now, an additional 25% uh, relate to pathways that we have known are important in coronary disease, but are not routinely measured in clinical practice. These are things like inflammation, Vascular smooth muscle cell proliferation in the wall that leads to narrowings. Uh, vascular tone is a vessel constricted or dilated and so forth. The remaining 50% of the top variants, what's really interesting is that they're not in the coding region of the genome and we don't know what the pathway is that they're involved in. So we know without beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're associated with increased risk of heart disease, but the pathway remains uncertain. That notion really has two important implications. The first is that each variant has the potential to be a window into new biology. And uh, increasingly, it's become not a 10-year process, but a 10-month process to go from a variant to function. The second it gives you the explanation for why these high polygenic score individuals can't be reliably identified with traditional risk factors like cholesterol, because the pathways that are being captured by the score simply aren't measured in clinical practice, or in many cases, we don't even know what they are. You and your colleagues have come up with polygenic risk scores, including one for cardiovascular disease risk that can reveal whether an individual has a higher risk and that it can be done for as cheaply as 30 to $40, which in the context of what medicine normally costs is, is not even a drop in the bucket. What fraction of the U.S. population would you estimate as of today has that information about themselves that is available to physicians who can use it appropriately? to consult with the patient and inform them of their risk. It's an important to make a distinction between a genotyping array that's collected for more research purposes and an actual clinical test. Between 15 and 20% of the population has genotyping array data that they're able to download from 23andMe, from Ancestry, from other direct-to-consumer companies. But one of the things that's a potential limitation is those may not be clinical-grade tests and although you could calculate a polygenic score, it's not something I would necessarily be comfortable putting in the electronic health record.
The reason for that is we just wanted to make sure there was robust clinical grade quality that went into that calculation. Things like, for example, do you get the same result if you use a blood or saliva sample from that person? If you run the same person through the same pipeline over and over again, do you tend to get the exact same result? When do you think a majority of the U.S. population has clinical grade tests on their variants that enable the calculation of a polygenic risk score by physicians like yourself that can inform them of their risk in a way that is approved by the Food and Drug Administration and and is clinically actionable. I think genetics will emerge as one of the most important tools for population health and enable people to uh, have a targeted screening or prevention program and overcome any inherited risks that they have. My best guess is that within the next five to 10 years, it will be standard routine clinical practice for everybody to have a genetic assessment that could be even whole genome sequencing and can look at both rare and common variants. The question is then, what do we need to do to actually get there? One is demonstrate the clinical utility. I think we really need to hold ourselves to a very high standard uh, to show that calculating genetic risk could, for example, be shown in a clinical trial to be tied to an intervention that shows these people benefit or otherwise enable a targeted screening program or intervention program that also demonstrates clinical utility. The second is developing the clinical infrastructure and educational tools to be able to deal with this new type and very complex type of genetic information. One of the things we've done is built a preventive genomics clinic, which I founded not in cardiology, but actually in primary care, because that's where I think the future of this genomic medicine will need to happen. But we embedded ourselves in primary care over the last two years, put together a team of genetic counselors, doctors, and geneticists, and do a genome-first approach to, to tailoring people's medical care. And in tandem with that is user testing of different polygenic score reports where we return people's polygenic scores and we measure the impact on their clinical care over the next six to 12 months. Those are the types of things that we need to do as a clinical community to really demonstrate the value proposition for doing this. So far, we focused on risk. You may have elevated risk, but often only a fraction, even if they have dramatically elevated risk, go on to get the disease. Let's take the biggest risk factor known in Alzheimer's disease, and that's the ApoEpsilon4 or ApoE4 allele. If you have one copy, your risk goes up. If you have two copies, one from your mother and your father, the risk goes up even further. And if you look at people who are 70 to 80 years old, the blended 10-year risk for getting Alzheimer's disease, if you have ApoE4 from both your mother and your father, is 14%. If you're at 80 to 90, the 10-year risk of coming down with Alzheimer's blended men and women is 22%. We're talking about the highest known risk factor in the population, and it's still only one in four to one in five people. What that means is you'd have to treat these people for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years with a drug even if they only had a, for the first, for 70 to 80 years old, a 14% 10-year risk of getting the disease, so one in seven, so you'd have to treat six people who wouldn't get the disease to prevent one from getting the disease, assuming that your drug was 100% effective. There are two sides to that equation. DNA is not deterministic. That's great for patients because many of them won't go on to develop disease. But that poses some significant challenges in terms of number needed to treat for clinical trials and drug development. 
I think the example of Alzheimer's is a great one. We've gone on to show that if you look at individuals with BOE4 variants, we often see incomplete penetrance. Incomplete penetrance means you have the high-risk variant, but you stay healthy. And what we've shown is that the remaining 3 billion base pairs as encapsulated by a polygenic score actually does modify whether or not you'll go on to develop it. And that's actually just genetics. Genetics is only one of many potential tools. If you have a Epsilon 4 variant uh, group, but you could further enrich them with a polygenic score to capture the impact of the remaining 3 billion base pairs, blood biomarkers, biomarkers in the CSF or imaging parameters, you can imagine layering on multiple modalities to get you the event rate that you want. That is going to be the future for many of the diseases in this space. The second thing I'll say is to think really creatively about what might be reasonable surrogate biomarkers or surrogate clinical endpoints that might be used to give us more confidence to embark upon, for example, a $1 billion clinical trial. And so for Alzheimer's disease, what we've shown in our genetic assessments is that the majority of people, even in the highest risk bin, don't go on to have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And that's incomplete penetrance. But what happens if you actually do a subclinical cognitive test? One common one that's used is a digit recall test. If I repeat a seven-digit phone number, uh, can you repeat it back to me? When they did that, a very large study, what we were able to show is that at age 45, there was no difference according to genetic risk. Really, when folks entered into the 60 to 70-year group, the group that trailed off the most with a substantially accelerated trajectory was the group with high inherited risk. You can imagine a situation where primary prevention in Alzheimer's is just not an option. It's not feasible. It's not efficient. But you might imagine two approaches, one using enrichment, using both genetics and non-genetic markers. And then number two, thinking creatively about surrogate endpoints that could give you more confidence to move forward. That may be a way forward for some of these very difficult to treat diseases. We've really focused on incidence. What's your risk of contracting the disease? You could think about this in a very different way, which is what are the genetic markers that determine disease progression? Because you may have two individuals that develop the same disease at the same age, and one of them, the disease may progress very rapidly to death. And we see that, you know, I've known acquaintances with ALS, for example, from diagnosis to death was a few years. But then you have Stephen Hawking, who lived for decades. Those are two really different things, incidence versus progression. Progression is also under genetic influences. Do you think that you could develop sensitive markers of disease onset, some sort of cognitive test or imaging tests or blood tests. And then you wait until the signs of incipient disease first become visible, but before the patient has really suffered any decrement in performance. And then you start treating now 100% of these people are going to have the disease because I know the disease process has already started. Do you think that's a practical approach or not? In 2008, for the first time, we were able to have a list of common variants that meaningfully increased disease. And that was thought to be a goldmine in terms of drug development. It turns out that in some cases that was true, but the vast majority of time it hasn't been true. What we're forced to now come to grips with is these results really represent the start of the process rather than a meaningful deliverable in and of themselves. It's possible that the relationship of a nominated pathway to disease onset is actually different from disease progression, and we're starting to develop new risk scores that might specifically target that need. Even if you know a genetic association is important, 
you need to know the subset of patients in whom the pathway is most relevant. But if you do a genome-wide association study for lung cancer, one of the top hits is a variant that affects your propensity to smoke. And so one approach would be to say, I need to modulate that receptor and that'll prevent lung cancer. But it's pretty obvious that that would only work in the subset of individuals who are exposed to tobacco smoke because we know the pathway, we know what's relevant. But for many of these uh, associations where we don't know the pathway, if we don't really understand the biology, we could find ourselves going down a path that's just not fruitful. And then lastly, I think you really need to think about the interplay of a given pathway with the current standard of care therapeutics. So for heart disease, for example, we're now able to drive cholesterol down to very low levels. So additional therapeutics there may not be as high value as those that target things like inflammation or vascular tone or other things that simply are orthogonal to the current standard of care. In some ways, we've really been a victim of our own success because standard of care for heart failure, for heart disease, for diabetes has become quite good. These are examples of where we might think about taking genetic association studies, which are now more possible to do in more diverse populations than ever before, but really thinking of them as a starting point in terms of how we package something into a druggable pathway. Human genetics, sort of like a Polaroid snapshot of an individual where it's not changing by and large. You have the same set of genes for your entire life. But what you really want is more like a movie. You could imagine for Alzheimer's that you might have incipient signs of disease because as neurons in the brain lice, they release proteins, including the neurofilament light protein. You could detect that in the blood. That would be a sign neurons are starting to break open and spill their contents, though this is an early process in disease. Do you see there being a future for other types of poly scores, maybe a polyprotein risk score or a polytranscript if you're measuring mRNAs, or if you're looking at chemical metabolite, polymolecule risk score? What do you what do you see as the future there? Genetics has a couple advantages. The first is it's stable from birth. You can find people at very high risk early in life and give them a decades-long head start for prevention efforts. But it's also the case that if you're trying to predict the risk in a 60-year-old person, there's no question that what happened in the intervening 60 years of their life is actually quite important. The parameters that reflect some of that, whether that's uh, behavioral or socioeconomic features, or whether it's these biomarkers that give you more of a dynamic sense, it will ultimately be much more powerful in terms of uh, predicting risk. This whole idea of going multimodal in terms of risk prediction, we've really only started to scratch the surface, and that's in large part because we haven't had the data sets, which are well phenotyped and are followed longitudinally over time that integrate transcriptomics, metabolomics, proteomics, and genetics, as well as all the other clinical and socioeconomic risk factors. That's something I think we will see major growth over the next five years. It's only now that the communities have started to come together to compare notes and, and show correlations and go multimodal. Traditional approach is there's one group specialized in proteomics and other that's in genetics, and that's just not going to be the model that takes us uh, forward at the pace we want to go. Thank you so much for joining us. It was really terrific to have somebody with your level of expertise on this topic share your insights. Thanks so much, Ray. This was awesome. And I couldn't be more excited about the, the science that uh, we all together are going to do over the next few years. Thank you for listening to DNA Unlocked. And thanks again to Amit Kara. 
Associate Director of the Precision Medicine Unit in the Center for Genomics Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. This was the final episode in the DNA Unlocked series, but there are more insightful interviews coming your way soon in our next podcast series, Undruggable, where Ray Deshays will explore the ways of innovation in drug discovery. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.